Welcome to Mormon Visual Culture, a podcast presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. Today we bring you the recording of an interview I did with Gary Ernest Smith, legendary painter and founding member of the Mormon Art and Belief Movement. This recording was taken from the final event that we had as part of the Zion Art Invitational, celebrating 50 years of LDS art. It was originally supposed to be an interview that I held with both Gary Ernest Smith and with the director, Lee Groberg, who is currently uh, putting together a documentary on the Mormon art and belief movement. But uh, he he had a flight from Mexico that didn't arrive until after we'd started the interview. It was delayed. So hopefully we'll get Lee Groberg another time. He's actually committed to that. But it gave me an opportunity to focus exclusively on Gary Ernest Smith. I think you'll appreciate the interview. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Also, excuse the sound quality on this recording. It was stripped from the video recording that we did. And um, it just, it isn't at the same level of our other recordings, but we didn't want to lose it either. So thank you for your patience. Well, welcome to to uh, the last event of the Zion Art Society's 50 Years of LDS Art. It's, uh, it, it, we saved the best for last. We have the artist Gary Ernest Smith here. <laughs> which is a big honor. Um, Gary is, is a founding member of the Mormon Art and Belief Group, Mormon Art and Belief Movement Group. A lot of terms, you're gonna have to correct me in, in, in some of the, uh, the verbiage. I know I'm going to get Listen, some back in those days. We didn't even know what it was. You didn't know you. <laughs> but this group has had a huge influence in ways that maybe some of you know and some of you don't. By hopefully by the end of this conversation, um, we'll learn a lot about the, the the exciting time in which they started their careers. And I say started deliberately because this is this is an ongoing movement. This is something that is continuing. And and as I've known Gary over the years um, and, uh, and and seeing the work he's doing now it seems like even it's even more relevant now than it was even back then and it's just been gaining steam all the way through so hopefully we'll get to some of the work you've been doing then and now I'm glad you feel that way I'm not sure I do well it's always hard to judge your own work right I can be a I can be a third party that can come in and say it's absolutely true right and no one will contradict me <laughs> what we'll do is, I'll, I have some questions that I'll be asking uh, Gary as we go through, and um, whenever we get together, we have great conversations. Um, I've prepared some specific things that I want to talk about, and then we'll open it up for questions um, uh, near the end as we're talking. There's some seats up here for those of you who are arriving in a little late, and there are also some seats on the other side. Don't be shy. Come in and walk around. And for those of you who are joining online, uh, we'll be looking at comments there, too, which is why I've got this. Well, first of all, um, I'd like to ask a really basic question. Where did the name Mormon Art and Belief Movement come from? Uh, some historian grabbed a hold of it. Really? We were, we were thinking in terms of those. We were just trying to stay alive and trying to do our artwork. And uh, a, a bunch of like-minded artists got together. And uh, it was kind of marshaled around uh, this fellow that did the painting here, the landscape painting, uh, Dale Fletcher. So for those of you who can't see it, it's Dale Fletcher, and the painting, title of this painting is Adam on Diamond. So Dale Fletcher, you were saying, I'm sorry. Yes, Dale Fletcher was, uh, was a, an instructor at BYU. 
And when I came there, uh, he had he had written this manifesto on what Mormon art was to be like and all that. And uh, and it was it was uh, pretty well laid out as to what is and what is not acceptable and that kind of thing. So we all took that and pretty well dissected and threw it out. <laughs> because <laughs> okay, because we realized that that creative artists kind of find their own direction in, in life, and you know, by going by a canon of of certain ways things are done, uh, sometimes doesn't quite get full the full potential that people can can bring to it. So, so I'm gonna I'm gonna back up with, and, and I want to ask a few questions because there's a lot of. Wow, that that that, that uh, brings up a lot of questions. I have. First of all, is um, where did where did you learn about this manifesto? Was it before you went to BYU or while you were at BYU? While well, well, I was at BYU. And at what form did this manifesto take place? And well, did he call it a manifesto? Uh, Dale had created this thing on what a um, I guess for the lack of a better word, Mormon art would look like. When we say Mormon art, you know, it's kind of a misnomer in a way because. It's, I don't know that it's Mormon art or it's Mormon artists are doing it. You know, it's, it's, sometimes it's kind of nebulous. You can't right. always put your finger on it. So, so were you, I, we should probably back up even further and ask, um, how did you end up at BYU's art department? You were well, from Oregon originally? Uh, yeah, I was from Oregon. I, I, I came to BYU as a non-member, of all things. And, why? Uh, why? Uh, a good friend of mine was going there, and I had transferred from the school. I was going to um, two-year college. So, it was so I just came to BYU, and I liked it. To be with a friend who, who was going. Yeah. Uh, who was LDS. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's this fellow right here, in fact. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you about that painting pretty soon. Tell us. I, I want to hear all about Elton John. David Hunt. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Dave, Dave, uh, Dave Hunt had married my cousin, my first cousin. Okay. And so he and I were good friends, and he transferred to school, and... I had to go somewhere, so I said, okay, I'll tag along. So I was at BYU for a year. I wound up joining the church there. And in doing so, I did um, that painting that's right behind you. It was done in 1966. I was figuring this up back 60 years ago. That painting was done. I have not had that painting out since. Uh, I started thinking about what Michael was going to be talking about, and I pulled that out. It's an acrylic painting. And uh, it's called Ascension of the Spirit, and it was dealing with kind of philosophical concepts, you know. And uh, and that's one thing that we were we we group of artists were doing is that we weren't we weren't trying to <coughs> just do a, an illustration necessarily. It was trying to take conceptual things and even even things like uh, doctrinal things that are abstract and try to put some kind of visual form to. So let me try and fill out what BYU's art program looked like at the time. And, and Dale Fletcher was, was a professor there. And was, was, it, a, um, was it a robust program? Mm -hmm. were, and were you there specifically for it, or is it something you fell into after you got there? Well, I, I, uh, I had the fortune uh, at the time of coming to BYU and being hired to be an assistant professor. I don't know why, but that's what happened to all of these guys right here. We were all teaching classes. Even as you were students? Uh, as, as students. And what kind of classes were you teaching? 
basic design, basic drawing, basic painting, whatever. Now, we know today that the School of, of, uh, of, of in Humanities Department at BYU, there's the, an illustration program, there's a studio program, there's kind of a choice that some artists have to make when they go to one or the other. Did that, it sounds like no, you know, it was, you, it, was a, it was a little more nebulous at that time. It, uh, those, those divisions had been made at that point. Okay. I think uh, when, when uh, I came to BYU as being probably one of the first generation of artists in Utah that uh, started actually marketing their work and selling mm -hmm. their work in galleries. There were there were basically no galleries in Utah, maybe, maybe one gallery, and it was Dewey Moore Gallery. Dewey Moore was I've heard the only gallery in Utah. And um, were you sending your work actively there while no, you were No, he didn't want to even have anything to do with me at the time. Okay. Because I, I wasn't painting landscapes and stuff. I was so painting weird things, okay? <laughs> so this is, there's a, there's a, it seems like there's a kind of, I'm trying to figure out where this manifesto comes from and how it plays in the environment. Because if you were a professor today, mm -hmm. and you were to show up at your college and say, okay, everyone, let's gather around. I've got a manifesto. Mm -hmm. Let's go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, it, seems like, it, it seems like there was an environment of big ideas. Mm -hmm. Was there an active approach to we, as, as a program here at the Lord's University, mm -hmm. we're going to produce the Lord's art. Was that a feeling? Well, it was, it was, but it wasn't quite that confined. I mean, it was, I mean, we were trying to figure our way through this stuff. We didn't know what we were doing. And uh, we just kind of like, like-minded people getting together and we decided we were gonna to try to create our artwork, you know, the, as we felt about it. It wasn't, it wasn't what you'd call church illustration. It, was, you, it was dealing more with, with uh, allegorical things or uh, uh, symbolical types of things. With any destination in mind? Uh, well, you know, we, we did look at the manifesto. We, everyone looked at that and we kind of took out what we liked in it and what we thought wouldn't work. Basically, what didn't work in it was, uh, it was, it was very, very confining. In some, in some ways today, in some schools, in um, the high academic schools, you know, where you'll where you find the Richard Lack School or whatever, where they have a very very rigid uh, look, maybe even maybe even Jeff Hine in some respects, of course I admire a lot. Believe me, I, I what those guys do is, is amazing stuff. So for those who don't know Richard Lack, Richard Lack was a student of Ives Gamble, who was a student of McGregor Paxton, who was a student of Jerome. So he came from this 19th century academic, very rigorous. He was up in Minneapolis. And he was doing it at a time when modernism had mostly taken over. But he had a very doctrinarian approach to, in the midst of modernism, we are going to maintain our values mm -hmm. from the academic. And you know, there is, there is really something to that. I mean, I, I have an academic background. My work doesn't always show it so much. I always felt like if you could draw well, you can just about do anything. Because it's just really, it, it's really nothing more than a, a skill that you acquire to be able to express yourself. And the better you can express yourself, the better, the better you see things. The better you see things, the better you draw. So I always just kind of took it from that standpoint. But I departed a lot from it and uh, really got a lot into kind of free form abstraction even. And, with, and was inspired by the Egyptians and by uh, early civilization art and things like that. 
Was it was it like this at BYU? Why you were at BYU? Was it this kind of you you could you could piece together what you wanted in your own education, even as you're teaching? Mm -hmm. We we could kind of pick and choose, you know. Where I mean, every everyone, all of my friends at that point, uh, we were all kind of doing our thing. Say our, our thing. Here was, here was Trevor out there doing these kind of mystery. Trevor Salvi. Yeah, Trevor Salvi. He was doing these large kind of. Uh, mystical paintings that were very academic in their approach and you know and Michelangelo was his his artist and he was kind of doing what he wanted to do in the same way he felt Michelangelo might have done it during his time and so uh, you know and I admire an awful lot about about Trevor and what he's doing and I have to say that I was even inspired by some of it from time to time mm -hmm. but everyone was doing their own thing Every, everyone was kind of pulling together what they felt this was going to be looking at this canon of how it might be and uh, using what you wanted from it and departing from the rest of it. So, so we never did find a specific way of doing this. It's almost more satisfying, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. As an answer that there isn't one right yeah. answer. Yeah, there's no, and you know, and everyone is so different in their approaches and, the, and, things, they, and things they do, it was very honest intent, you know. Did you, when you say we, let's, let's fill out who was in this group? And is this painting a good representation of who was in the group? No. Okay. Uh, so maybe however, we shouldn't use that as a basis. Well, the reason I brought that painting is uh, we had offices at, at BYU when we were graduate assistants. And uh, and this was my space. This was an orange cast we got from BI. This was my space where I So even back in the 60s, students were yeah. bumming furniture off the BI. Now, um, yeah, yeah, we were, well, we, we did all our shopping at BI. In fact, much to the chagrin of the administration, we would go buy suits from BI and our shoes and everything and wear those to class. As a statement? Yeah. What kind of statement were you trying to make? Oh, just crazy artist stuff, I don't know. Yeah? Um, we were suspect. You were suspect? <laughs> we were suspect. I did a painting one time that hung in the Wilkinson Center for many years, and when... Uh, Ernest Wilkinson was president. Yeah. He came and said, take that ugly painting down, get it out of my sight. So they did. They stuck it in a broom closet. <laughs> and 20 years later, I get a phone call. Um, are you Gary Smith, the artist? Yeah. We found your painting in a closet, and there's a bucket sitting in the middle of it on the floor. Would you like to have that painting back? And I said, gee, if you're not going to use it, I'll, I'll take it back. Okay, so I've, I've got a question that I'm going to preface with a kind of long story that goes along this. But it, but I don't know if you've heard this story before. It only happened a few weeks ago to me. I was on, uh, I, was, I was at a local television station, ABC4, and I'm, uh, I, I, I've given some kind of just brief pitch for a local event that was going on. And I come off stage, and this man says to me, do you like art? I said, no, I like art. He said, come up to my office. We go up to his office, and he had Trevor Southey etchings all over his walls. And he had been a uh, he had been a, a manager of ABC affiliates all over the country, New York before Utah, before that Chicago and San Francisco. But he was a track star and football star at you know who I'm talking about at BYU. And Trevor Southey had approached him about being the model for his Christ images. And after he was convinced, took him some convincing. He, uh, he, Trevor Southey had his exhibition of, 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 of the various Christ images that were up. And um, this man said, and, and President Wilkinson had them paint gray squares over all of the penises. Oh. 
And I went into President Wilkinson's office and I said to him, that is a return missionary finish. You can't cover it up. <laughs> I thought, I don't know if that line of argumentation would really work with anyone. I don't know how, how I was going to convince him with that. But, I, it, but, but it, made me, it makes me wonder. On one hand, you've got this kind of, this kind of freewheeling intellectual environment that you've created with your, with your group of, of Trevor Southey, you, we'll, we'll name other names, um, with Dale Fletcher. But then on the other hand, you do have, at least on some level, some pushback. How, what was the mix between what you could do in your art versus what? Well, we could do almost well, anything in our art, almost anything we wanted to. Um, being acceptable was another thing, you know. To whom? <laughs> to anyone who didn't like it, okay. So it was just anybody who walked through? Yeah, I mean, we had exhibitions and things. I mean, we had, the, we, had our, we had our exhibitions, and we had some pretty far out stuff in those exhibitions for the time. So give me an example. Well, there were, uh, if, in fact, if you want to go to BYU right now and see an exhibition of religious art over there, the Trevor Southey painting of the fellow you're talking about who was the Christ figure is in that painting. Right, right. Uh, Trevor was doing these kind of mystical, large, floating figures and, and all things. And um, Were they being reviewed? Uh, they, oh, yeah, we were, we were being reviewed. Who was Dialogue Magazine was reviewing us, and they were very complimentary. I mean, the first Dialogue Magazine uh, did, a, did a big review on So you immediately, did you, would it be fair to say that you immediately found a tribe, a group of people who were there simpatico? Were, there were. In fact, our group, we, we started getting together as a group. Um, and who's we? Well, there was uh, Dennis Smith, Trevor Salvi, myself, um, some of the core group, um, we are the core group. Um, Dennis Smith, Carol, Trevor Southey, Carolyn Pearson. Carolyn Pearson. Um, there were people from drama, people from music. Uh, a lot of people started coming to our group because they had seen our exhibition, they saw kind of what we were trying to do, and they kind of wanted to do the same things in their own disciplines. And so we carried on that tradition of having those shows for about uh, five years, I guess. Did the shows become kind of the organizing principle of it? So, yeah. mm -hmm. so it, it, you weren't mm -hmm. you weren't necessarily having meetings, but you were holding exhibitions, mm -hmm. and everybody was involved right. in those. And then, so, would musicians perform uh -huh. at yeah. the same time? Well, um, then the bureaucracy started taking it over at BYU. Lauren Wheelwright, who was the dean at the time, uh, he has exerted his authority and did a book on Mormon arts. And um, I don't know if you've ever seen that book. I have seen it. Yeah. Anyway, but tell me, tell me he what took it over. he took it over and pretty well killed it. How did he? How did he <laughs> kill it within the institution? Uh, well, that show lasted probably three or four years. The show that but, you were doing mm -hmm. at BYU was was pretty well controlling that. But but then there kind of became a criterion as what is and what is not acceptable. Okay. How did that? So Trevor said, "Okay, we're going to hang a paper right here." or whatever, you know. How did, um, you know, it, 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 it makes me wonder, it seems like um, it's not just within Mormonism, but in general, this, this seems like a kind of, 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 of back and forth, of a pendulum swing, right? There's a lot of freedom, and there's a lot of people who gather around that freedom, and then somebody comes in and says, oh, too much freedom, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta organize this a little bit. And then maybe maybe it goes in cycles. Well, the discipline is that you 
you are the best you can be at your craft. And whatever medium you choose to express that in, you know, you want it to be the very, very best you can be at. So people were doing that, I think, in all the disciplines. Whether it were dance and we had, oh, deep. All, all forms, even film. We were, people were beginning into this. And we started having these meetings, and we would have a group this size, maybe even larger, and it kept growing and growing and growing. And it got to the point where it was so unmanageable, we finally just said, okay, we're out of here. And this was on campus. Yeah. And at some point, you decide, you at this point, you're, you're, you're teaching and going to BYU. You're organizing these shows, which are annual. And, and is the art produced for this? How much art are you producing personally for this annual show? And well, are, are they thematic? Uh, pretty much, yeah. Although it's very experimental, too. Okay. Um, because I wasn't dealing with just, I was dealing with conceptual ideas, not just, uh, just the reality of the first vision or something like that. I was dealing with a lot of other, other things, and some of the other artists were also. Can you give me, is this an example? Uh, yeah. Yeah, so so tell, us a, tell us about this work, when it was created. It was created in 1966. Was this for a particular exhibition? First show, it was in the very first Mormon art show. Now, my wife has a folder, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna let her pass that around if you wanna look at this. This has a example of some of those paintings in it, but it also has some current things that I've done, and some, some uh, current religious things that I, I've worked on. You might recognize some of these because the church uses them an awful lot in so on this on this work in particular, mm -hmm. um, ascension of the spirit. Ascension of the spirit. Tell us where the concept came from. Spirit sending. Spirit sending. I don't know. That's all right. It was just. It was just. I was doing a whole series. I did a whole series of paintings. I don't know where they are today. It's the only one that I had. Did you sell works out of the show? Then? I did. I Who's buying these works? I, I don't know. These people <laughs> so people like come to you. So there is no gallery. Like the fairies back there. <laughs> there is no gallery system, really. With no, it, no and even today, it, um, it's, there's a nascent one. There but is, back there. in the 60s. There's, there's very little there, There's very little room for sales for religious art. Yeah. Very, very, very few. Did it feel kind of rebellious being overtly religious in your art? I wasn't thinking time? about it. We weren't thinking about that. You weren't? We didn't think about being religious. I think we were just really seriously exploring, trying to find a voice. And we thought, you know, maybe there's a chance we're going to meet, get the ear of somebody in the church office building, and they're going to come and look at this and say, wow, this is really good. But the, we had just the opposite reaction. <laughs> well, one of the questions I, I, you know, I've been, as I was working on this show 50 years ago, yes, all right. Um, and I was writing about about it um, and the labels and organizing it. One of the themes that came across to me about art being produced in different times is it depended on a lot on the vehicle in which the art would be seen. Mm -hmm. So you have Minerva Tyker who is producing, I mean, she was alive and producing her Book of Mormon series while you were working. She's working in isolation and she offers it to the church, but the church doesn't have a museum. They don't have really any any manuals or publications those were not centrally produced in mass until the 70s and they weren't really didn't have images till the 80s you kind of have magazines here and there you have the improvement era and a few others that are that, that don't become monthly and under the church until the 1970s 1971 was the date of the friend and, and the ensign and there's no church museum which doesn't open until 84 
So, I can tell you what so what, who were you hoping was going to show up with from the church, and what were they going to do with it? We just thought, okay, so here's a, here's a, a group of uh, serious artists. They're trying to do something with uh, their, basically their beliefs. And uh, whatever form that might take, I think uh, there's a, there was a show. In fact, I think there's I think it's going to be a show in between conferences uh, about a Mormon art group in New York. The Mormon Art Center Festival. They have a show in Glen Nelson. Their, their, their work is a lot more is a lot farther out than Utah. Yeah. You know, and uh, and those people are really sincere about what they're doing too. And right. They, Absolutely. And uh, and so. Uh, I was going to tell you that, but um, but I, I think the 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 thing we were trying to do was just to be very honest about what we were what we were trying to do, and we had a, a loose organization that kind of held us together, and we were making this thing happen. And we were having these shows. So so this is this is not me being this, this is kind of flippant. Sounds kind of impractical. Oh, it, <laughs> are, is art ever practical? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sounds like. You know, it, when you think about what existed in the 19th century, for instance, mm -hmm. you've got the Paris Salon, and when artists couldn't get into it, they'd hire out space next to, like Gustave Courbet, he hires out space next to it. There's an economic model that he's planning on, yeah. right? And it strikes me as incredibly ambitious at a time when the church has this nascent university, nascent art program where, where it's kind of freewheeling, there's not really a commercial gallery system outside the church. The church doesn't have a distribution system for art. Mm -hmm. That you are all pistons firing, just ambitious. It we just were, it's it's, de too. it's delightful, and it's also it's also puzzling in the sense of of, of where did that energy come from? Well, we were just uh, I think we just were all young and naive, and we were just following our, our muse, you know. So, from an art an art historian's question. Are you all painting together? Are you all, are you painting, are you looking, does Trevor Southey walking in while you're working on this and saying, you know, he needs a little more of this? Oftentimes, but usually it was pretty separate. So your work, because because all of you have very different aesthetics. I mean, you and, and Dennis and, and Trevor are the prime visual artists in that group, is that fair? And um, you are all very productive, as you, you and Dennis still are. And Trevor passed away a few years ago, but he was productive up until the very end. It seems like that's unique in and of itself. You get three artists in college who continue to, to work on it. Were you actively trying to, were bouncing off of each other to be different from one another? No, no. No? I don't think that, that was even, we, we even thought of that. I think we were just seriously all just following what we felt we should do. And three completely different approaches to maybe even the same subject. You know, but, uh, so you decide at some point that you're going to move to Alpine, Utah, and and all be in close contact with one another. When did that happen? Oh, uh, that was about 1982. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is well after you had been working for some time. We kind of carried on the tradition for a while. We had some art walks where we would invite, open up to the public, and people would come. And we had, in one afternoon, absolutely overwhelmed by that, we had 1,500 people come through. Where? On one front, one Saturday afternoon. In, in Alpine? In, in, no, this was in uh, in Bull River when we were, we were doing the... Uh, Bull River is? Bull River is south of Alpine, no, yeah. west of Alpine. 
It's in Highland. It's in Highland. Okay, it's just off Freeway SR 92, right? Okay. But we, it was a huge project, and we did that about three years and said we can't do this anymore. It's just too much work. But we did have shows in Alpine, too. And we had singers, and we had uh, musicians of sorts. And Are you effectively acting as your own gallery at the same time you've been doing this? Pretty much, although at that time, there were a couple of galleries that did open. There was Weixler Gallery. Werner Weixler, who's uh, still around? Opened up, and uh, showed with him for many years. And Probably, probably a few others that begin to kind of creep into the market. But Are they interested in the religious art that's being I, done? They actually, yeah, they were. And they actually pushed some of that. And we, you know, I don't know how we all got through it, but we did. And we actually had sales. And people maybe saw the pure intent that we were, that we were trying to do. Now, Neil, when you said, I don't know how we got through it, but we did, I, <laughs> you, you shot a look over and your wife was in the audience. Well, and, and, and so... There, there is this practical women. <laughs> There's this practical question of you're at BYU. At some point you graduate. Mm -hmm. What happens after graduation? Are you married at this point? And what happens? I got drafted into the army. I was drafted out of BYU, sent to, sent into the military. Spent 18 months in the military. What did you do there? Uh, what did I do? Yeah. I had uh, strange, interesting, and harrowing experiences. <laughs> <laughs> Where were you? Um, I was uh, we went to, went to um, Fort Lewis, Washington for basic training, and uh, got orders to go to Vietnam twice. After that, went to Korea instead. Uh, instead, and so you were on the demilitarized zone. Yeah. Okay. And um, uh, let's see what else did I go? Well, I, we went to Alabama for a year, and I taught in a non-commissions officer's academy because I had. Of all the guys I went through, I had the highest education, so they just put me in teaching with academies. So. Teaching art? Teaching? No, I was teaching Quick Kill. Quick, quick Kill. What's Quick Kill? Quick Kill is instinctive shooting. Really? Um, it's a it's a process in which you use uh, Red Ryder BB guns. If you know what they are, these yeah. Daisy BB. Guns. I've seen a Christmas story. Okay. Uh, you're given a washer like this. You stuff tissue paper in it. You throw it like this, as high as you can in the air, and you cock your gun and shoot the wadding out in the middle of it before it hits the ground. Wow. And it's not, it's not aiming. It's instinctively shooting that. And I got pretty good at that. My heavens. And it was for uh, Vietnam, people going into Vietnam, Vietnam, and people coming back from Vietnam. Although they weren't taking instinctive shooting. They were taking English courses so they could get their English back together. So I was teaching kind of both things there. You were getting paid to do this, so this is this I was is, in the army. So this yeah. is in the army, and then and then, then I went to Korea. Yeah. And then you went to Korea, and I came back. All my friends had gone. All these guys are all gone, and I. Were you the only one out of the group that went to went in the army? Six. We'd been married six months when I got drafted. So, but but why weren't the rest of them drafted? Is it uh, the, and and I know this. You may not be able to answer for all of them, but. There, for those who don't know, um, being drafted into Vietnam, there were there were delays for those who were in college, for those who got married, for those who had children, yeah. and and so it seemed like you would have been on the bottom of the of the list. Well, I had just gotten drafted, married. Okay, so it didn't. I was very high on my on my draft list because I came from a small town in Oregon, and there weren't a whole lot of people to pick from, so I was a guy that got. 
Yeah. So if you had been from Salt Lake City or yeah, from, from New York City or where you are, do you reconnect with people after coming back from Korea? Well, they've all moved, passed on. They've all, I mean, not passed on. They've all moved on to teaching and so forth. And so I was the only one left. And I came back to teaching at BYU. And then uh, while I was there, um, um, I was still painting. And started doing commission, church commissions. And so those church commissions were, were, were a real interesting discipline for me. So before we get to the church commissions, because I want to delve into that a lot, I want to ask what had changed between the time you were at BYU teaching as an assistant professor and a student, and what was it, eight, ten years that had passed? How many years had passed? Not that long. It was three, three years. What, if anything, had passed between that time and the administration that you were then teaching for and the program? What had changed in the program in that time, uh, if anything? Well, there were some new professors, of course. Uh, all my friends were gone. They were all out there teaching the world. Actually, it was a, it was a really good comparison for me to make because I was, uh, I was able to see my friends out there teaching, and I was just trying to decide whether I was going to finish my master's degree and get a teaching job or whether I was going to just jump into the world and start painting. And I decided after seeing, making those comparisons, I decided that I was going to jump in the world and start painting. What were your first things you were painting? First what? What were the first things you were painting? What were you, what were you going to jump in and paint? Uh, let's see, what was I doing at that time? I was still doing a few few pieces that I had been doing before. I was still doing some of that. We were uh, just, in fact, this, if you were to see the back of this, that's painted on army canvas. Red green army canvas. Can I show it back? Yeah. Right. <laughs> and the museum professionals are all wincing. Yes. See that? <laughs> this is this is a roll of army canvas I confiscated from the army. <laughs> and just so somebody in the army is watching this broadcast right now, yeah. and they, you're going to get a phone call tomorrow, and they're going to ask for how many how many dollars is that going to be? <laughs> so my friends are all gone, and I was. I was trying to decide what I was going to make it. Turns out I made the right decision. You know, I jumped into the into painting, and, and I stuck with it. And it just kind of kept getting better and better. And, and that's the secret, you know, is just the uh, the perseverance. Keep at it. Keep at it. You said, and I cut you off. You started getting church commissions. Who is approaching you for church commissions, and for what? Well, I had. And when was this? Oh, that would have been around probably about 82. 82. Okay, so yes, who's approaching I had a conversation with Boyd Packer. Okay. And uh, hold I, on a second. Someone just doesn't have a conversation <laughs> with with Boyd, with Elder Packer at the time. Well, he, he was an artist, and I right. don't know somehow I connected with him okay. somewhere back. And uh, so I I went up to his office and said, you know, I'd like to kind of do something for the church. You initiated it. Yeah. Because you'd known him, but you you said. Feel like I need to go talk with Elder Packer. Mm -hmm. Made an so, appointment, you go. So I go down and, and talk to Warren Luke. Warren Luke was in charge of visual arts for the church at that time. He what was, does that mean? Well, visual visual arts, the visual things that the church was using in, say, publications and things like that. Yeah. Now, uh, Warren Luke did a wonderful uh, woodcut of the first vision. So he was himself an artist. Yeah, he was a, he was an artist. Okay. And so I was talking to him, and I said I would like to do some illustrating. So I got some illustration jobs, you know, for ensigns and things like that. And uh, and, and are they telling doing, you what to do, or are you pretty free? Yeah, pretty much. 
Okay. The problem with commissions are you kind of do what they ask you to do. Okay. <laughs> so you don't have a whole lot of freedom, although there's there's freedom with that in that too. But uh, that's when the uh, the martyrdom painting came out. Came, came and feel free to look around. There's a painting here that's now been widely distributed, and we have it in the exhibition now. And and there are various versions of this. Where does this fit into the versions that have been? Oh, it's probably second or third version. Okay. Uh, there's a very large one. It's four by five feet that the church uses all the time. Right. And this is the depiction of Joseph Smith. In, 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 Carthage. in Carthage jail as, yeah. as he and... And, and so that, that commission came out of that, but it also, it was a very frustrating thing because it was dealing with committees. And this is after the conversation with President Pat. So you talk with, you're doing work for, let, let me just back up a little bit. You're doing work for the, you, you go to, the, the, there's an illustrator who's doing work as the art visual director for the church. And then from him you go to President Packer, no, or is it the I other way around? Packer before that. And Packer kind of says, this is the way you go. Mm -hmm. So I went back to Warren Luke and talked to him. Okay, and then you're doing work for, I'm sorry if I, I've just I, I was probably more work. discouraged by it than anything because I realized that there wasn't a lot to be done at that time. And uh, but I was commissioned to do a few pieces that turned out to be kind of significant pieces. Well, but were, but the approach I took to them is, and I'm still doing this, uh, I'm still doing some of these illustrative pieces yeah. But I'm not doing them as illustrations. I'm trying to do them as um, metaphoric pieces that kind of harken almost to folk art. Mm -hmm. I want them to have the sense of folk art about them because folk art deals with a large concept, not just specific events. In a painting like with Bruegel or someone like that, you will see something happened in the community over here, but you see something happening over here too. So you see an event happening here, but you see another event here. And so the paintings, some of these paintings I'm doing now are dealing with that kind of thing. They're not just specific, but they deal with what's happening around that event. So it's, you know, it's kind of um, reinvigorated me to do some of that type of work again. I'm also doing a lot of gallery, work in galleries. So I find that one of the questions that I, I wonder about being around in that era, in the 70s and 80s, is the church seems to have a kind of, it seems like it's it's pushing art very hard for kind of two purposes. One is in, in world's fairs and outward kind of proclaim the gospel mission. Mm -hmm. So it's hired in the late 60s and throughout the 70s, Harry Anderson. And then it goes to his network and you get Tom Lovell and John Scott. And, and they're, they're doing works that are being used primarily in world's fairs. Then occasionally they seep back into church publications. As somebody who is LDS at this point and who's creating art, what was your reaction to seeing their work being, being used and created? You're, getting, you're, you're kind of chuckling a little bit. Well, having read your book that you did on Earl Freeberg. Okay. <laughs> And seeing what he went through in, with his commissions, yeah. In, in some ways, in some ways today, commissions are easier, uh, and there are new outlets for artists, you know, and commissions. But there's still, if you, you've got to understand when you work for the church, they have a very specific mission in mind. They're not so particularly about you doing. Um, your thing, and then we will uh, somehow incorporate it into our 
teacher. You be you, and we'll figure out how to use it. Well, yes and yes and no. It's also about you do your thing because we trust you enough to do it. But it still has to be usable. And so that there's there's limitations there, you know. And once you realize your limitations, you're okay. But many artists say, well, I don't know why they don't use my work. I mean, that abstract piece I just did's wonderful. Well, it probably doesn't have the use that the church would want to use for. But so they don't you, discourage. They don't discourage it. But they probably wouldn't. So are you essentially of two minds in the kinds of art that you're producing? Are you simultaneously producing art that you know will get accepted mm -hmm. through this commission processes, and then doing things that are experimental and yeah. of, of more personal taste on yeah. the side? And what are and what are those being? Oh. What's the outlet for those? Okay. Well, there isn't any. Um, they are, they are, one day, somebody will find these and say, wow, look at these, you know, I'm just kind of not going to um, really make them known too quickly, and I'm basically financing it myself, and it's really the best way to do it, because nobody can just tell you what to do or how to do it, and in the end, it's, it's kind of what gift you can really give. Uh, hence, and I can't say that by doing the commission you can't give a gift, you can. But um, there are sometimes are just there are just specific restrictions on a piece of artwork. If you're going to work within that confined idiom, uh, you just have to understand there are certain restrictions for that. So at some point in all of this, you start developing more and more of a reputation as a Western artist. Um, and get me wrong, tell, correct me if I get this wrong, um, you've had work in over 22 museums. You've had shows, you, you recently had a one-man show, uh, a retrospective that was done in, in Iowa. And um, you've developed a real career and leadership within the communities in New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, through that art, which may not be overtly religious in its way, um, but 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 um, maybe maybe there is a religious element to it. There's, as there's well. spiritual elements to it. Do you find yourself? <clears throat> at what point did you start developing that career, and how is it is it something that's parallel to the work you're doing for the church? Uh huh. It is parallel, and you know, uh, if you. I know there's probably a few artists in here. How many um, How many of you are artists? Raise your hands. Uh, you know what it's like when you get your mind set on a specific thing you're doing and, wow, i got to stop it and go over here now. You know, making that transition is not an easy thing to do. So, uh, but yet you can, you can learn to do it. And, and I think you can do it effectively. So I have um, five galleries that I furnish art to. And I, I try to keep them within five-day paintings of each, each gallery. And then I'm doing uh, some commission work, and I'm doing the work that I'm doing for myself. This is right now? Yeah, right now. This is right now. So how productive are you right now? How many works are you creating on average a month? I'll ask my wife. She keeps trying to pull me out of the studio. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's not good. Uh, he, he's, uh, he's, he's picking on you. You can't defend yourself. I still, I still put in a good, pretty, pretty much a good eight-hour day. Okay. And, um, 
feel like I'm not doing, not really achieving anything if I'm having a layoff of settings or some reason. Now, I've been to your studio recently, and when you go into your studio, and I hope, it, I hope I'm not giving up any, any, uh, any secret sauce as, as you go in, but I see that you have in your studio um, a mix of works that are um, landscape that are going to uh, a, a show that, 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 that is for, for Modern West Fine Art that's in Salt Lake, and that's coming out. That's, uh, what is it? The, I think the 19th of this month, the Modern West Gallery in Salt Lake. And, the other, and then at the same time, you've got a work of figurative religious works that you're doing that's part of a series. Mm -hmm. And that is something that you brought together with your own vision, you're working with people to fund it and so forth. Is this, is, is this kind of what's always, what, if I were to show up Gary Ernest Smith's studio in the early 80s, the mid 80s, the late 80s, the early 90s, you know, you go on, am I gonna find that this is what your modus operandi was throughout, that you would, you would kind of be of several minds at the same time, yep. And, and all of them were for, and they look so aesthetically different. That's part of it, is that the landscapes are, they're enormous, they're ambitious, and they're visually, they're, 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 they're visually, some of them are experimental, but um, they're very different from the figurative work, which has this kind of folk feeling on some level, yeah. I'm talking about, and symbolist feeling. But they're of different styles. Mm -hmm. Well, I, uh, when I, when I got out of the army, I, uh, I thought, okay, I'm not going to go out into the world and sell my religious paintings. So, why not? Why not? Well, because, well, virtually no market for it. I mean, there's virtually no galleries that support that. And I don't know, I just felt like it was it was something more personal. Anyway, I, uh, I, I transformed um, that concept into a, a, a spiritual concept, actually, where uh, I went back home to my, to my home in Oregon I started going back through the old uh, uh, photographs of my family, and I kept running across these pictures of people that, that, that worked out in the fields, and and they wore hats, and their faces were all shadowed and everything, and so I started incorporating that into these paintings, and they became very popular. And uh, Where and, where were they? Oh, they were all over the country. I was, I was selling those in, in Arizona and my shows and things, and, and I was selling them all over the country. What do you think uh, people were responding to? In them? Oh, maybe some nostalgia. I don't know because they they were dealing with uh, uh, a generation of people that had basically had moved on. You know, generation I remembered as a boy, um, and uh, I painted that. I painted those subjects for quite a long time, and all of a sudden I found they were getting larger and larger and larger, and the people were getting smaller and smaller and smaller. <laughs> I don't I don't know why that was, but all of a sudden. People disappeared, and the paintings became huge, up to 14 feet large, and uh, and they were huge paintings of of um, fields that uh, had been cultivated, plowed or harrowed or something. And I, I was caught up in the design that man had placed within the dirt, in the earth. And I thought, you know, what a great metaphor that is, because all life stems from our earth, from the earth. And all life comes from what we grow. And what a great metaphor that is that uh, these paintings of just earth, just earth themselves have such a great symbolic quality to them. And so I did about, I think about probably 25 to 30 of those paintings. 
Were you going out on location and doing studies and then coming back in the studio? I did it all kinds of ways. I did it. I, I would go out and do drawings. I would do little painting studies. I would take photographs. I had people, once I, people caught on to what I was doing, I had people sending me photographs from all over the country uh, of some field they had seen somewhere. And it was like these beautiful fields that we pass by every day, nobody pays any attention to. All of a sudden, people are seeing the beauty, you know, in those fields, and they did have they did have a, a spiritual quality to it. To they still do. I want to talk a little bit about color, because I know that you have. Um, even as I'm looking at these, this the earlier works that you have here. I know it's that about five years later than that one. That one's five years later. I know that. Um, there's something that you have been devoted to, which is palette knife work. You even machine your own palette knives. How many palette knives do you think you have that you work with on a single painting? How many different kinds of palette knives? One. One? Really? <laughs> really? Pretty much. Really? I have probably 20 palette knives, but there's one that works. There's one? And it's, uh, <laughs> and it's, it's a palette knife that I bought, that I bought and I, I grind it to a point on the end, and I have one side that's convex. One side is concave, okay. and it gives me all of these interesting textures. If if you see my palette knife paintings, you don't just necessarily respond to them as palette knife paintings. Um, this is all palette knife. Now, some people, and, and I even heard in the audience, there's a there's a little bit of 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 uh, of, of, of oh, oh my heavens, that's a palette knife. Why do people have that reaction when they see? Because that? palette knife has a reputation. Drop that painting on and look like a palette knife painting. But I took it to something that I can I can get very very fine detail with, with that little point of my knife. I can a lot of my paintings and I find out when I use the brush I don't quite get the uh, intensity that I want with color. You cannot muddy color with a knife. You can muddy color with a brush, but you can't muddy color with a knife. I remember. I don't you, know why. I remember you talking to me about this once, and maybe I'm confusing it with, with other conversations because, like many of our conversations, I walk away and I think and I write and I do research. And you had said at some point that, that a palette knife, because one of one of the reasons we felt so strongly about it is you felt like color, when it's laid down with a flat knife, mm -hmm. it bounces light back. It does. It has in a way that has a different effect you know what, than the furrows of a brush. You know I learned this from? Who's that? Rouault. Rouault? Rouault. French painter. Okay. Yes, I saw uh, uh, some originals of his work and the way he applied that paint. Uh, it just, if you look at his paint, they, they're luminous. There's a luminous quality to them. And if you use color, a pure color, like a, you take a red and a cadmium red, mm -hmm. and you mix those colors together, you get a cadmium red red. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's more of a blood red, okay? Yeah. Uh, the um, pre raphaelites discovered that, and they did it through glazing. Right. And so I learned if I would take a color and take it to its really bare essence and then put a glaze over that, my God, you wound up with a color you could not mix any other way. Hmm. And so that's that's kind of what I discovered it, and I kind of passed it off to, passed it on to my son-in-law and a few other artists that, you know, you should say who your son was for those who don't know. Uh, Jeff Pugh, yeah, uh, yeah. the artist. Yeah, and, uh, and so, I don't know, you know, art to me is experimenting and um, 
yeah, I've gone a lot of directions, and I, I'm interested in a lot of things, and uh, I've learned that um, the most financially successful artists are the artists that really stick with something and overdo it. What do you mean by overdo it? <laughs> overdo it to the point that it becomes a cliche of their work. Interesting. Um, because of financing, financial means, finances. Do you because feel that way about yourself, though? Uh, uh, there are some things that I have done or redone, but I, usually when I find, when I get to that point, I think it's time to move on. And not change for the sake of changing, but just to see evolution take place in it. And if you look at almost any, the history of any artist's work, you go look at Picasso's early work onto the work that he did at, in the beginning of his life, you see such a tremendous range of styles and, and, and uh, experiments that he did. In almost any artist, you almost see any, any artist that you want to really look at their life's work, you see a tremendous change. And it's because uh, art to me is not stagnant. I, I, don't, I don't get caught up in trying to make it all the same. I like to uh, experiment with it and change. And, and, it's, and in some ways, it's, it's the best for art. In some ways, it's the worst for sales. Because there are clients out there that will say, well, I thought he liked what he was doing. What did he change for? And there's a lot of artists out there that become cliches. Uh, R.C. Gorman. R.C. Gorman. Oh, yeah. R.C. Yeah. Gorman. Do you know R.C. Gorman's work? R.C. Gorman got a thing. And he did great. He did really well with it. He was kind of the same figure in the pot, you know. Right. And he was very successful. I don't begrudge people doing that. I mean, if you want to do it, fine. You know? I'm just saying, I, just, I like the art. I like, I like the expression, and I like the way... Studying, experimenting things, I like them. I like what happens with that. So about, I want to ask about uh, some questions about this moment. It seems, it seems interesting. There are a lot of people who are very uh, uh, interested in the Mormon Art Relief Movement. I'm, I'm one of them. Mm -hmm. And there's a Brent Swanson, Dr. Brent Swanson, working on a book right now. Lee Groberg, who, by the way, those of you who are wondering where Lee Groberg is, where is he? He was. He, we were hoping that he'd be here by the end because he's been filming in Mexico. And he had a flight he may still, that was, he, may still he may show up at the very last moment, but he had a flight that was delaying him, but we, we'll, we promised to bring him back in for another event we're doing. But then you also have Nathan Florence, who was working on his own documentary of it. Um, There's been a lot written on it. As you look back, it seems like there was a period of time, there was a very beginning of your career, that the Mormon Art and Belief Movement was was very active. You guys, you, you get back together in the 80s. When you look back at the long arc of it mm -hmm. and look back on your career, how significant was it in forming your identity as an artist? Oh, I think it was very, uh, very, had very much uh, impression, because, I think, on all of us because, uh, you know, we were basically for about until 10 or 15 years, we all out there doing our own thing. We had very little communication. You know, the time I was in the service and people had gone off to teach or whatever, we had very little communication. Um, was that was that a good thing or a bad thing? No, I think it was a good. I think it was a good thing. Um, it, I think if we would have stuck together, I think we probably would have been doing the same thing. I don't think that we were really influencing each other too much, although there was some of that. But I don't think that we were really influencing each other an awful lot. Were you continue? Were you in touch with them? All the way until when Trevor Southey died and Dennis Smith. I 
you, you're, you live close to one another. Are you still in mm -hmm. regular contact? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. 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 And we seldom ever talk on it. Uh, <laughs> it was, uh, in the beginning, it was like we were trying to figure this whole, this whole thing out and, uh, and trying to figure out, you know, where we fit within all of it. And we were just a bunch of kind of creative guys that just kind of followed our own path. And it was the church really that united us. And uh, as you know, uh, some some of the early some of those early members, you know, um, wound up not being members after many years too. And uh, but it, that didn't it, that didn't even affect us. It didn't affect our relationship at all. Uh, we still really loved each other, and we still could get together and talk and have just a great great time. So that old idea of what Picasso said, that when artists get together, they don't talk about ideas, they talk about brushes and varnishes and turpentine. Uh, Is that, and you know, I think it had to do more with maturity than anything else. It's just like you find your own voice and you try to follow. Do you find it, um, do you find it puzzling that people are now interested in the Mormon art and belief movement? What do you take from that? What do you take from people's interest in it? What does, what does that say to you? Um, I think it's, uh, it's a, from what I've, I've observed, it's a lot of younger people. Of course, everybody's younger than me now, anyway. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's younger people trying to figure out the same things. It just so happened that at BYU, there was a special place, a special time, and special people got together. And it just kind of, this thing grew out of it. And there's there have been some of that since. There have been a small movements that... Brian Kershesnik group and um, um, Doug Fryer and that group of guys that uh, that came from that period, you know, they, they didn't have the unity, but yet they all were very good painters and they kind of followed their own their own paths. Uh, in the meantime, along came things like temple drills, which you've been involved in. Yeah. They are not easy jobs. <laughs> Say more about that. Why? Well, the last job we did, they broke a tabernacle. We. There were four of us. Okay. Two of them died. Two people died. The name of since then. Who are they? You want to name them? Robert Marshall and James Christensen. Pastor. And uh, they was very sick while we were doing that, and it was a it was a test of endurance and faith getting through that project. Because it was a year's project, and um, uh, there were four panels. We each were responsible for a panel, uh, 60 feet long and 12 feet tall. Each panel, each panel is 60 feet long and 12 feet tall. Yeah. And uh, plus ceiling, plus we need ceilings also. And so halfway through it, Jim gets a real bad bout of cancer, and is going into the Huntsman Center having a kidney removed, and uh, he was out of it, pretty much. And Robert had a heart aneurysm and actually died on the operating table, and he was pretty much out of it. He, he came back. He came, he was brought back to life. So at some point, do you switch from a small palanite to a mortar board? No, I just started about that <laughs> Start throwing about that, about that one. It was more brush work from that, from that standpoint. But... Uh, we hired extra people to come in and help, and you know, we got it through. And it was it was a, quite an amazing experience. But afterwards, it was like, 
sweat and we got this thing done. Mm -hmm. It was a big job. And we uh, we did the, we first did Nagar Temple. Uh, the, the group of us first did Nagar Temple. Yes. And then I went on to do um, Samoa Temple murals and uh, Wickham City Temple. Yes. Now, I may have this wrong, but it seems like there was a period going from the 60s up until President Hinckley's um, tenure as president of the church where there were almost no commissions for art within temples. Right. It seemed like the really last ones were the uh, the, the Twin Falls Temple, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Lee Green, Richards, and Iggy Redwood. Uh, yeah, well, actually, it was the uh, Los Angeles Temple. And the Los, the Los Angeles yeah. Temple. And if you know anything about the Los Angeles Temple, if any of you have been there, these are huge murals. And they were done by Disney artists. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know that. Yes. And they weren't members of the church? They were. They were. Yeah. They were. So and even they, then, they were had very a... instrumental in one of the uh, uh, temple presentations mm -hmm. of using Fantasia in part of the film. Oh, really? Yes. They got access to Fantasia to use in creation. Really? Yeah. So uh, you're, you're asked about, uh, you're, you're brought into this process of creating temple murals at a new era of temple making. Mm -hmm. And what kind of instructions are you given? Well, President Hinckley, in the very beginning, the first uh, the first murals that were done, he told us, and I'll tell you, I think I've told you this, but it was a significant thing he said. And uh, it's been canonized now, it's been written down. So um, he told the artists that we were working on those temple murals, he said, the reason we're going to start using original art is because the artist places a spirit into the paint. It does not translate into print. So repeat that, folks. Repeat that. <laughs> the artist there, places transfers into the paint. The spirit uh, does not translate. Does not translate into mechanical print. And um, and that spirit enhances the surroundings. And so if everybody realized that and understood that, there'd be a lot more art. If anyone from BYU is listening, I want somebody in the <laughs> physics department to take that on. <laughs> and I want someone in the art history department. I want a joint paper on the physics of that and the, and the philosophy of it. So it's a powerful idea because it has to do with the idea of living with originals, having originals has an influence through the reproductions of the original. The re original painting yeah. takes on a life of its own. Mm -hmm. and, and the greatest proof of that is to go to any museum and look at any famous painting. Mm -hmm. It is a living thing. It has a spirit of its own. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think if anybody, if, if, if everybody knew that, it, it would change the concept of, you know. I mean, I can't say there isn't a place for prints than there is, you know. There's, People can't afford a full Ford original art, but uh, there is a place, <clears throat> but um, in my mind, more of a minor place. Well, I want to take a moment now to open up questions to the larger group um, here for those of you who have questions for Gary and Smith. Um, yeah, let's start here on the front row. Hi, Gary. I just wanted to ask you how are your uh Art and belief background, how did that help you in painting temple murals? Or did it? Did it? Yeah, yeah did it. Um, I have always um, 
had an ability to to paint large, um, and you know, painting a mural is a, is a hard thing because not everybody can paint a mural. It's uh, it, it's it's a matter of of, uh, of upsizing something so it looks accurate, and. Uh, I just always had the ability to do to larger painting. In fact, I can do a large painting as fast as I can do a smaller painting. Hmm. I can do a painting uh, six by eight feet almost as fast as I can do a painting thirty-six by forty-eight. And so that helped a lot. You know, that background helped a lot. Um, and I can I, I would say I don't know that there's an absolute direct correlation to it other than the fact that for who it's for, the, the art is because mm -hmm. of who it's for. Now, I didn't finish what I was telling you about what uh, President Hinckley said. When he, when, uh, he came and, and uh, told us about why we're going to be doing murals again, and kind of calls for that, doing that, he said, um, I don't want you to work with anybody but me. He said, don't listen to any designers, don't listen to anybody, don't listen to any of our bureaucrats, don't listen to anybody but me. I'm sure that the Temple Department loved that. And uh, <laughs> as it turns out now, it is don't listen to anybody but the bureaucrat. <laughs> How did that actually work, though? Because you go in there, and and designer or architect is working out of space, and if it goes against what President Hinckley said, do you call him up on the red phone and say, hey, no, the artist, a, it's, it's, it's an artist. He didn't from. pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. He only gave us one advice, and that was be appropriate. That's all he said. That's the only advice we got from him. Now that is great. Now, Can we I, have that emblazoned yeah, on, on a wall? It's just it's almost like yeah. OB wise, what more what more can I say as yeah. a quote? Be appropriate. Well, yeah, you know, and I maybe I'm a little hard, a little harsh by saying bureaucrats, but um, when something like that it's, it's a it's a big deal. There's a lot of temples, there's a lot of murals. It's gotta be managed somewhere. Right. So um, People are put in positions in which they have to fulfill that, those positions. And sometimes um, it's not handled in the best of ways. Uh, sometimes um, the artist taken to be, feel a little taken advantage of. Um, sometimes it's the artist's fault. You know, I mean, it's, there's a human element there that has to, you have to overcome to get those things done in the temples. But it's always amazed me, um, with all of the problems that comes in doing a mural, and believe me, there's a lot of problems. Stretching those canvases to getting them up on the walls. Just the artist is responsible for all problems. Yeah, just just the sure physics of doing things. There always, in the end, there's always something that kind of comes through in the end, saying we can overcome the human element, hmm. you know, because of what it, what it is hmm. and what we're doing it for, hmm. and so. Uh, I don't know. It's been it's been my it's been my uh, belief that, that you know that there's always something that wins out over the human element. <laughs> so yeah. All right, go here. Go. Earlier, you mentioned a few times that when when you were first starting the Garden Week movement, that you're just trying to figure things out. I, I assume that part of that's just figurative, but at some point, did you feel like you did? figured out, and was it just that you found your voice, or was there more to it that, that you, you felt you discovered as an arrival point? I don't know that we ever really did figure it out. I think we tried to do it as we went along, and we found out, we picked up a lot of people along the way, too, that were kind of inspired to do it, and all their own disciplines and 
people like that that would come along and they would start doing writing music and they and they there were people in dance and they, I mean there were all these disciplines that were doing the same thing and I think everybody was trying to find what that was but the, in the end I never came to any final conclusion on it at all the only final conclusion I've come to is that it's positive it it it, uh, it creates a positive atmosphere it's, a, it's always positive. There's got to be a positive end game in, in the end. And if you were uh, to write your manifesto, would that be a prime? Probably, probably because, you know, as uh, individual as we all are, everybody's going to find their own way of doing it. And it's, it's kind of like the professor at school says, uh, okay, you've got to find your own voice, you know, and you just started figuring it out. <laughs> well, your own voice only comes after, I always tell my students, now you do your first thousand paintings, you might begin to see it. And, uh, and it's just as natural as writing your name. All of a sudden it takes on your signature. And so it isn't anything you particularly force. It just kind of happens. I don't know, did I answer your question? <laughs> so with that, you mentioned that you, you do something and you kind of get to a point where I don't want to use the word you perfected it, but you get to the point where you're like, okay, I've done that. Is there anything that's rumbling around in the in your brain that you that you see yourself moving to after you get to a point that you oftentimes a painting tells me where I'm going to go the next to the next to the next piece, and you know it can be just as simple as driving down the down the, down the road and seeing the sun hitting on something specific, and all of a sudden you you see that in it, and you're attracted to it for some reason, and you say. That would make a great painting. Or the elements of this and the elements of this, and you put those together, that would make a great painting. So I don't know that that, it's kind of like, your brain kind of connects those things, I think, as you're working, as you're going along, because I, I tend to work in series also in my work. I will exhaust a subject, trying not to over-repeat it too much, but I will, I will, when I feel like I've kind of exhausted what I want to do it, I'm ready to move on with it. And I could probably go back and you know pick up where I left off a few years ago and probably make money at it. <laughs> but, uh, and, the, and the money's important because it always gets you to the next step. But it's not the most important thing. The only thing that you will ever re be remembered for is your voice and your style. That's what you Do you feel pressure to have a particular style? No. Yeah. think to me it's just, you know, I'm always excited to get the next one, see the next painting, clearly. see what it's going to be. Do we have a question? Yeah. You also talked about inspiration, and I think sometimes there's a inspiration of members of the church we look to as, as direct information from the spirit or something that's strictly enlightening. As an artist, there's also the kind of inspiration that's that, that creative flair, you see something that's beautiful or attractive, you're drawn to it, right? And sometimes there's a crossover between the two that, that really links them together. Yeah. How much do you see that link between the two? Do you see that you work in different types of inspiration, or are they more the same? Mm -hmm. No, I, I try to find different ways of doing it because, you know, art tends to become very formulaic. You know, if you paint a lot and you do it a lot, you kind of pick, you kind of create your own formula in doing things. And I do too. Um, but I try to, every once in a while I like to kind of just mix that up and try something different, find a little different approach to it. 
uh, to me, that's kind of where the art is. That's where the art comes out. And, and you know, you have your successes with it and you have your failures. I mean, I have my days where I wipe it all off at the end of the day. And uh, um, I've always said that uh, if you try to create a masterpiece every time, you won't. But you can, you can create a good painting. And I try not to ever let anything out of my studio that I don't feel is a good painting. It, representing, it represents what I can do and do well. But I don't always like everything I do. But I kind of let the public judge that more so. If I know it's a good painting, I try not to judge it too much. And my best critic, of course, is my wife. Really? What are you doing that for? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know about that one. Really? I've worked all day on it. I know. I just, it doesn't seem to be. Okay. <laughs> so, and, that, and that happens. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reserve the right to, to ask a final question here. Well, well my question is the last one. And it, it's, um, it's something I've wondered about. I, I feel like uh, you've been very encouraging to me. You've been a major influence on me. For those of you who don't, um, don't know, I grew up in, in the art and antique business and then took another career path for years. And um, and uh, I visited Gary's studio after moving to Alpine and I was in a completely different career. And he encouraged me to go get my education. I don't know if you remember that. And I, I moved to London um, and, and it was, uh, I'm glad I did too. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, it's fair to say that I'm going to be a footnote in, in the number of people you've influenced over the years. But it's not just who you've influenced. It seems like there's a mo it seems like these past few years, you've been going through a personal renaissance and been producing more work than ever. Mm -hmm. and, and I want to know what's happened. If, if, you, if you can even say why, why you're being so productive now and what's changed. Well, let's see. Uh, I've had eight friends die in this last year. All my age. The last two, two years, actually, I guess. Uh, most of them are artist friends. And uh, I have, I happen to marry a woman that's a musician, understood art and, and music. And uh, she is a stickler on keeping me healthy. I weighed 158 pounds for the last 10 years, okay? <laughs> I'd like and, to move in. And she does. <laughs> and she does, she, watch, she watches pretty much what I do. Plus, we exercise a lot. I mean, we do our five miles a day, plus Pilates and, and yoga. She does yoga. So we do that, and we, we try to keep the health thing going. And I found that to be a real advantage. I don't know that I would be as conscientious without her to do that, but I think she's probably keeping me alive to do these things I want to do. And uh, maybe I'm keeping her alive too, but anyway. Um, but so it's I, not just I, nutrition I, that's causing No, but I, I give a lot of credit to her. But I don't know, you know, I've always had this, I, I always call it my pilot, flickering pilot line. It's just, it never goes out. It's always burning. It's always getting ready to ignite the next flame. And that never goes out. It's always the next piece. It's always that next creative thing. And believe me, I have my failures too. Um, but um, 
but it's always the next penguin. And uh, I think that's just part of this whole creative, this whole creative thing that uh, that we that we have. And uh, some people have it more, and some have it less. And uh, I've I've often also found in the gallery business that the artists can be their own worst enemies. Uh, if you don't have the love of production. You're a talented guy, but you don't have the love of production. You probably won't, won't work. Won't go very far. You've got to be able to produce too. But there's always this big argument. I had it with Michael Workman. Do you? Is your work going to be more famous because you painted less or more? Are you going to be Velasquez, yeah. who does 110, uh -huh. or are you going to be Picasso, Picasso who does thousands? Who did ten thousand? And I came to the conclusion that it probably is more because you you don't even know in your own lifetime whether you are going to be an important artist or not. We all would like to be, wouldn't we? But you don't know. It takes about 50 years of settling before uh, you, certain people rise to the top and their work becomes iconic of a period. And you don't know who that is, really. And, and and when that happens, then we get are able to use historians put titles to it and names to it and Give write, it write about it. This is Gary Ernest's yeah, business. And yeah. Martin Belief to me was was a, an exciting thing that happened. We were able to develop it for our own purposes, and when it got cumbersome, we kind of just went away and followed our own path and still did it. And I, I get, I, I'm really kind of proud to say, yeah, there are people that have kind of picked up on this thing, and there are things being written on it, and there's films being done on it, and stuff like that. And so it kind of had, it kind of had a voice, and it was maybe just some like-minded people who got together and then just, you know, did something. Well, Gary, it's been a real honor to have you here. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Mormon Visual Culture. Uh, for information about Gary Ernest Smith and for archives of past recordings, you can go to our website, zionartsociety.org, and look under the podcast tab. I'd like to thank again, Gary, for joining us for this interview. It was a huge privilege. Uh, this is Micah Christensen. Thank you.